the National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. The Oregon Trail stretched roughly 2,170 miles from Missouri to Oregon's Willamette Valley. It rambled across prairie, sagebrush desert, and mountains. And from the 1840s into the 1880s, hundreds of thousands of immigrants made the challenging journey, and not all survived. Today, more than 120 historic sites, auto tour routes, and markers show us where the Oregon Trail traveled. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. One of the choke points of the trail, if you will, is in western Nebraska, at a place preserved today as Scotts Bluff National Monument. Here, the Oregon Trail runs across Mitchell Pass, a low spot squeezed by buff-colored bluffs that tower to the north and the south. Today, a state highway runs through the pass, but back in the mid-1800s, it was a narrow wagon trail that Conestoga wagons and covered wagons followed. I recently visited the National Monument and explored part of the trail with Eric Grunwald, the site's lead interpreter. In a minute, I'll be back with that conversation. The Everglades Foundation the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com, P-O-T-R-E-R-O, group.com. We're talking about the uh, the pass through Scotts Bluff or yeah. Scotch Bluff or what do they call it? Well, um, when the immigrants would have come through from 1841 until 1869, they typically referred to all the bluffs in this area that you can see, including the Wildcat Hills. They would have called it Scotts Bluffs plural. Uh, but now the U.S. Geological Survey recognizes the bluff on the north side of the highway here as Scotts Bluff. The one that we see here on the north side of the, or south side of the highway what we call South Bluff. So yeah, they would have referred to this whole region as Scott's Bluffs. So I saw um, one of the diaries from, from 1850 or 1851 referred to it as Scotch. Scotch, Bluff. yeah. 
And I think it's just one of those things where, you know, a lot of the passing of information was done orally. So when somebody told you about something, it's almost like a game of telephone. Maybe you misinterpreted it, and so sure. you would call it Scotch Bluffs. But sure. yeah, most people refer to it as Scotch Bluffs. Okay, okay. So what's this uh, butte on the, the right? So uh, on the right is what we call Eagle Rock. And I'm not sure why they called Eagle Rock. I guess somebody thought it looked like an eagle uh, at some point. Uh, but it's one of the five named rocks here at Scotts Bluff. If we look on the south side of the road, we have what we call Sentinel Rock. And then a little bit further to the east, we have Crown Rock. Dome Rock is the one that kind of sits by itself over there. And then uh, on, the, uh, on Scotts Bluff itself, part of it is what they call Saddle Rock. And I guess if you use your imagination, it looks a little bit like a saddle. Sure, sure. And how long did the, the wagon trains come through here? I mean, it wasn't a, a very long period in Western history. Yeah, so uh, the first year of uh, my emigration on the Oregon-California Trail uh, would have been 1841. But that year, probably only about 100 emigrants would have come through. Eight, uh, 1843 would have been the first year of large-scale emigration. That year, about 1,000 people. And it went right up until 1869 when the uh, Transcontinental Railroad was completed. Sure. And once that was completed, it pretty much made the, the trail obsolete, at least for long distance travel. But over the years, we estimate maybe up to 500,000 people uh, passed along the Oregon Trail. Now, one, one of the theories on, on how Scotts Bluff got its name, um, I believe uh, an early trapper or uh, mountain man Supposedly died nearby and his, his skeleton or his body was left here? That's exactly right. So we do know that uh, there was a, a gentleman who worked for the Rocky Mountain Fur Company by the name of Hiram Scott. And he had attended the 1828 Green River Rendezvous in what's now Wyoming. And uh, as he was traveling back to St. Louis from that year's rendezvous, something happened to him. And there's a lot of conflicting stories about what that was. He may have been attacked by a group of native people. He may have been ill. But the gentleman that he was traveling with he became such a burden to them uh, that they basically abandoned him somewhere in this area. I've heard some accounts think it was uh, maybe even as far away as where uh, Fort Laramie is today. Uh -huh. uh, but the next year when these uh, gentlemen that he was traveling with uh, were going out to the next year's rendezvous, they got to the base of Scott's Bluff. And like we said earlier, they would have referred to all of these as Scott's Bluffs at that time. And they found a human skeleton. And... Uh, it was a very large skeleton. Hiram was a pretty large guy. Yeah. They assumed it was Hiram, and so they named the bluffs Scott's Bluff, or Scott's Bluffs in his honor. Yeah. Was the skeleton buried around here, or was it lost we to history? We don't know. Yeah, it's <laughs> lost to history. We have no idea where the skeleton ended up at this point. Interesting story. Yeah. So where we're at right now, where the uh, paved trail ends, and we're on this kind of uh, stone gravel trail, this is the actual route of the Oregon-California Trail, starting in 1851. Um, before that year, they would have gone further south to Rubidoux Pass, but we think in 1850, soldiers from Fort Laramie, in order to improve the efficiency of getting supplies to the fort, we think they would have improved a road through Mitchell Pass in 1850. And so the next year, the emigrants, they started to take advantage of it. And in 1851, about half the emigrants were still using uh, Rubidoux Pass, about half were using Mitchell Pass here. But by 1852, almost everyone is using Mitchell Pass. So starting in 1852, this really became the official route if there was such a thing as an official route sure. of the Oregon-California trails. And they, they chose this one because it was closer to the river? Closer to the river, yeah. You didn't have to go so far away from the river. The river was really important because it was a source of water uh, for your animals, but for us, also for your own needs as well. And there were some nice springs at Rubidoux Pass, um, but it also supposedly, at least they thought, it shortened uh, the distance they had to travel by going through uh, Mitchell Pass. Yeah, yeah. 
over the years, a lot of archaeological artifacts found here, or, or not many at all? Um, some have been found for sure, but as far as the numbers, I, I just don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Any grave sites? Or? Um, not in the monument that we know about, but in Rubidoux Pass, there are several grave sites in Rubidoux Pass. Um, just outside of the city of Scotts Bluff is uh, really along the Mormon Pioneer Trail is the grave of Rebecca Winters as well. And that one's really neat in that it was kind of rediscovered as they were putting the railroad tracks, laying the railroad tracks through the area. The railroad workers discovered just a, an iron wagon tire, as they called it, which was just really a ram, with the name Rebecca Winters, aged 50, inscribed on it. And so that's pretty neat. You can still go and see that today. Yeah, yeah. Now, your visitors today, I mean, how large is the monument and, and what do they do here? How often do they... How long do they spend in the monument? So the monument is not very large. I want to say 3,000 acres, but I'll have to double check on that. And most visitors, they come here, they spend maybe an hour to an hour and a half. They'll check out the visitor center. They'll drive up the summit road. Um, they might walk out to the wagons, um, but that, that's a typical visit for most people. And then they're, they're on their way. A lot of our visitors are on the way to the Black Hills or maybe to Yellowstone, although that's not really happening right now, of not, course. Not till Wednesday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And where does this trail take us? So this is the what we call the Oregon Trail pathway. And so it leads uh, about a half mile uh, through these man-made ravines that were created, we think, like I said, by those soldiers who improved the road in 1850, uh, at least to William Henry Jackson's 1866 campsite. So if you're unfamiliar with William Henry Jackson, you probably know who he is. I've right? heard of him. Yeah, yeah. so he was, uh, he was an artist, he was a photographer. He went on the 1871 Yellowstone expedition uh, took some of the very first photographs of what became Yellowstone National Park. And in fact, some people say that his photos were a catalyst for the creation of the park because there was a lot of rumors of, about what lie in Yellowstone. I mean, uh, people were talking about petrified birds singing petrified songs. Um, so people were like, all right, what's real, what's, what's not real? And so Jackson's photographs, he was able to photograph the geothermal features like the geysers and... Uh, uh, the Mammoth Hot Springs, and so people realized, wow, some of this stuff is real. And, and in fact, some people thought, you know, what, the reality of this place is actually better than the rumors that, yeah. that are out there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So his campsite was up here? Yep, his campsite in 1866. So before he was a photographer on the uh, Yellowstone expedition, he uh, worked as a bullwhacker hauling freight to mines in uh, Montana. And so he would have come along the Oregon Trail here. Um, and his campsite that he used when he was in this area is right at the far end of the trail. Yeah. Got time for a walk? Sure. Yeah, we can walk over. Yeah, he was an interesting guy. He really chronicled a lot of the West, and uh, I guess he traveled a lot with Tom Moran. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was just an amazing guy. I mean, um, I, I kind of think of him as... Um, Remember, there was a beer commercial, the world's most interesting man. That was kind of him. I mean, this was a guy who, uh, he had traveled the Oregon Trail as a young man. Uh, and then by the time he had passed at the age of 99, he was flying around the world and photographing sites in Africa and uh, Australia. So, really interesting guy. Well, and you think back to, to the 1850s, 1860s, 1870s when he worked in the West. Mm -hmm. um, you know, today we... we put this postage stamp size card into our cameras and take a picture and there oh, it yeah, is yeah. And, and the equipment that he had to lug with him. Oh yeah, yeah. All the chemicals, the glass plates. Um, he had uh, something that was kind of revolutionary for its time in what he called the dark room on wheels. So it was basically like a tent on wheels that he would use to develop his photographs. 
So really, really interesting. And you know, some of the photographs that he took, he took the first photographs of Mount of the Holy Cross in Colorado, mm -hmm. and the fact that he had to lug all that equipment up the mountain um, and use snow <laughs> as water, snow melt as water to develop uh, his plates uh, is really amazing. No, and you think about how fragile those plates were and how many plates he had to take yeah. with him on a, a typical western journey of six months or oh, so. Oh yeah, yeah, I would imagine hundreds and, and unfortunately I'm sure some of them broke yeah. in the process of being uh, transported. And I understand you have a, a pretty good exhibit of uh, his works in, in the visitor center? Well, yeah, we've got an exhibit. We don't have a lot uh, on display. I mean, we've got the world's largest collection of his artwork, and that includes not only photographs, but also watercolor paintings um, and some sketches as well. Um, but it's so extensive and so valuable that we can't put a lot of it on display. So right now, we've got, I think, 13 reproductions on display. And right now, in honor of Yellowstone's 150th birthday, uh, I know it's kind of late, but uh, I'm working on a, an exhibit of some of his uh, photographs that he'd taken in Yellowstone as well. I'm trying to remember, he, he went up the Grand Teton, didn't he, he part of the way? I'm not sure if he went all the way up it, but he took some of the first photographs of, of the Teton Range, for sure. Um, and he may have gone up, I'm not sure if he went all the way to the summit of, of Grand Teton, but he certainly took some pictures uh, on the flanks of the Teton Range. Yeah, I don't think he summited, but um, I thought I read someplace where he, he made it partway up at least. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they were uh, truly adventurers and, and explorers of a different kind yeah. than um, what's being accomplished today when you think about what they had to lug with them mm -hmm. and how careful they had to be. And, yeah. You know, the technology that exists today makes it so much easier to, to yep. both tackle those uh, geographic, geological places. Yep. I mean, you had the time, you know, your exposures had to be just right. Whereas if even with the, uh, you know, today with a digital camera, you know, you mess up the exposure, you just go into Photoshop and, and mess around a little bit and you can fix it. And you can just, you know, look at the camera two seconds after yeah. you've taken the picture to see one. if you've got yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So much history of the, the American expansion here in the West. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this was the route of the Oregon-California trails. Um, it was also the route of the Pony Express for its short 18-month existence as well. And how far are you from uh, Fort Laramie? So from Fort Laramie, um, I don't know the exact mileage. It's probably about 60 miles or so. Is that all? Mm-hmm. Takes a, a little over an hour to get there by car today. Yeah. <laughs> but once once the, the army improved this this pass, a lot of the uh, the cavalry um, resupply routes or whatnot um, came yeah, through here. I'm sure they would have been, you know, you would have seen, uh, I don't know if you noticed the three wagons that were down there. Two of them were the typical family wagons, the two smaller ones, and then the one with all the oxen in uh -huh. front of it. That one's a Conestoga wagon, which would have been a, would have been a freight wagon. Yeah, I was looking in the, the, the third one and uh, all the home furnishings and whatnot and the, yep. uh, the basket of uh, buffalo chips. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So if you're traveling the trail in the 1850s, 1860s, or 1840s even, 
one of your jobs might be to collect buffalo chips along the way so that you would have some fuel for your fire because the trees that we see out here today, they just didn't exist during that time period. All these pines and junipers, cedars? Well, on, on the flanks of uh, Scott's Bluff, there were certainly trees, uh -huh. uh, but they would have been harder to get to. You would have had to scramble up the sides, so I don't think too many people had the energy after traveling 15 to 20 miles to climb up Scott's Bluff to harvest firewood. So it would have been much more economical, much more efficient to gather uh, the buffalo chips. Yeah, that's another concept that's kind of hard to wrap our minds around these days. Um, 10 to 15 miles a day was a good day back then. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, on a really good day, I've read that they could travel 40 miles, but that was probably to the east in the plains where it was relatively flat. Didn't have any major river crossings. But then once you got into the mountains, there may have been some days where you only traveled a couple miles. And, of course, there were the problems created by the, the North Platte River itself. If, if they want to cross there, they might run into currents or sand issues? That's correct, yeah. So the, the river that we see today is much different than the way it would have looked when the emigrants were passing through. We've got a lot of, uh, a lot of the water's drawn off for irrigation in this area. Um, and so it's kind of in a narrow channel, whereas when the emigrants were passing through, it would have been maybe a mile wide. Um, would have been in the springtime flowing pretty good with snow melt. Um, would have been soft sand uh, to get through as well. So it would be pretty dangerous to cross, and so you didn't really cross the river unless you absolutely had to. And the time for travel on Oregon Trail was uh, pretty limited throughout the year, wasn't it? It was, yeah. You had to leave your jumping off place, whether it was Independence, Missouri, or St. Joseph, or, or even later on in the emigration uh, where uh, Omaha is today. You had to leave uh, sometime between mid-April uh, and mid-May. And so you would try to get to here to Scott's Bluff uh, by the end of June and uh, make it to Independence Rock in Wyoming by the 4th of July. Huh. So here we are on the western flanks, I guess, of the monument and, yeah. and Eagle Rock. And um, it must have been quite a sight when they, they reached the crest and uh, it was all that flat prairie in front of them. Yeah, and, and we can't really see it right now, but um, on some days they would be able to catch their first glimpse of Laramie Peak, and so they knew that they were about to head into the mountains. You can't see it today. It's a little bit hazy, um, but you can see it out, out in the distance there. So some, Something to latch your eyes and your hopes on. Yeah, yeah. Although, I, you know, they probably had mixed feelings about seeing it because they knew once, once they got into the mountains, their travels were about to get a, little, a bit more difficult. But, but in the same vein, it was uh, pretty exciting because it meant that they were about a third of the way done with their journey. So here we are uh, in the general vicinity of where Jackson camped. Um, what can you tell me about this area? Yeah, so uh, Jackson camped here in 1866 as he was wor working as a bullwhacker. That's a person who tends to the oxen uh, that they use to pull f uh, wagons to haul freight. And uh, the freight that they were hauling was freight uh, to uh, kind of help in the mines in, in Montana. And so he camped here one night, made sketches of the things that he saw. And he seemed to be really impressed by the scenery that he saw here in the North Platte Valley. He wrote about Chimney Rock. He wrote about Courthouse and Jail Rock. And he wrote about uh, Scott's Bluff here as well. And uh, like I said, he wouldn't have spent much time here just one night, and then he would have been moving on further west. Uh, he ended up not actually going to the mines in uh, Montana. He ended up leaving that freighting outfit 
and heading to Salt Lake City instead. And then eventually he moved on to California. And then once he got to California, he kind of wandered around for a little bit. He seemed a little bit aimless. Spent some time in Los Angeles. He wanted to go up to San Francisco, but never made it because he made he kind of ran out of money. And so he ended up signing on with a, an outfit hauling Mustangs back east to, to uh, Julesburg, Colorado, where they were uh, put on the train to be shipped to Omaha. Mustang horses? Yeah, yeah. And what were they for? I think they were just going to break the horses and sell them is what they were doing. Yeah. yeah. So it was just uh, uh, a quick overnight for him here. It wasn't uh, during one of the expeditions when he would be taking uh, photos and whatnot. No, uh, it wouldn't have been. Although, you know, he did travel the uh, Oregon Trail route later on as part of one of the expeditions. I don't remember which year. Uh, but he worked with the U.S. Geological Survey until I think it was 1878 was the last year that he uh, was a photographer for the survey before he kind of moved on to other things. So he'd seen a lot over the course of uh, his time working for the USGS. He not only did he take the uh, Yellowstone photographs, he took uh, photographs of uh, Grand Teton. He took photographs of Native American ruins and what later became Hovenweep National Monument. He took photographs in what became Mesa Verde National Park. So he was all over the place uh, hmm. in the American West taking photographs with the US Geological Survey. Hmm. You ever read the book, I think, what was it called? Mountain and Men, or Mountain that made, Mountains That Made the Men? It was um, a history of the three expeditions west, the Hayden Expedition, I think the Wheeler Expedition, mm. I'm trying to think, maybe the third one was King, mm. and they each went to different areas of the west to, to survey it for the what would become the USGS. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a, a, a competition of sorts to, to see who would become the first director, and I believe Hayden wanted to be the first mm -hmm. director of the, what became the USGS. I forget what it was called back then. But I think, um, I think Clarence, I can't remember his name. So King is the guy who the highest point in Utah is named after then, King's Peak? I guess so. I guess and then so. Wheeler is probably the guy Wheeler the Peak. highest point in New Mexico is named after. Huh. Yeah. yeah. I, no, I haven't read that book. You, you should get it. It's a, it's a great book. Um, uh, the hardships that they went through and, mm -hmm. and getting, you know, separated you know these these teams out there and you know talking about you know melting snow so you could develop your photos and whatnot mm -hmm. but um it was a, a different a different era for sure and yeah. um hardier stock yeah one that we tend to romanticize but i think it was a pretty a pretty rough life to be uh out there on the trail uh exploring at that yeah time. yeah when when the wagon trains came through here, was mm -hmm. it um, much threat from Native Americans? So in the early years, no. They, you were more likely to be helped by Native people than you were to be attacked by them. However, kind of mentioned earlier, 500,000 people passed through this area. And of course, they're passing through not only the people, but all their animals that are pulling their, their wagons as well. And so when you know the grass is completely wiped out in this area, the game has been scared off. You would imagine the people who were already living here were pretty upset about that. And so towards the end of the emigration, that's when we start to see more struggles between the native peoples and the, the emigrants that were passing through, and rightly so. They were kind of annoyed by what was happening with their land and, and the animals that they depended on. Yeah, yeah, no, it was a, it was a tough period. Um, you know, when the, the Transcontinental Railroad came through, it, it basically separated the bison herds into yeah. two. Yeah. The northern herd and the southern herd. And we even see that starting to happen with the Oregon Trail, too. Yeah, really? It's starting to happen already then, yeah. 
So I know um, as you go further west and get to Guernsey, Wyoming and mm -hmm. Fort Laramie, you've got the, the wagon ruts. Do you have any wagon ruts here? We don't really have ruts. What we have is uh, here, you can see this depression here. There's not the parallel tracks that we normally associate with ruts. Okay. in the tunnel. Um, <laughs> at one time, I'm sure there would have been ruts, but they've been obliterated. So what we have these depressions are what we call swales. Mm -hmm. And you'll see swales pretty commonly uh, along the route of the Oregon-California trails. So we've got two here. Would that have been two separate ones, or, or was that a, a, just a, a natural ditch created by water? So I think what we have on the other side is just a natural ravine. Yeah. 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 Did they camp here, or did they, they move through pretty quickly? Uh, well, the Jackson Party um, in 1866 camped here. Um, I think some parties did camp here because, although not everyone did, you, you did have some firewood here that you could harvest. Um, but I would say, you know, just like today, not everybody camps in the same places. If you're going on a camping road trip or something, people camp in different areas. Some people camped here, and some people probably just moved on. Yeah. You know, certain areas were known as... Uh, areas where almost everybody stopped. So a good example of that would be to the east at Ash Hollow. You know, you had a nice water source there. There was plenty of trees. So a lot of people tended to stop where you had water uh, and you had, you know, good feed for your animals and, and trees for firewood. But otherwise, people just stopped wherever they thought was a, a good spot. When did they put the road through to the, the top of the... So that was... Uh... It was a project that was started during the Depression by the Civil Works Administration, and then they ran out of funding, and so the Civilian Conservation Corps finished it up. I believe it opened to the public in 1937. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was something that the people in the local towns wanted. They wanted a road to the top of the bluff, and people kind of balked at it, but eventually, I think probably because of the Depression, it, it happened. It was a good way to get men to work. work. Yeah. And so one of the things they did when they built the road was they used as little machinery as they possibly could because without a lot of machinery that meant more men could get in there with their shovels and, and build the road. So it is the oldest concrete road in the state of Nebraska and it also is the only road in Nebraska with three vehicle tunnels. <laughs> well the only road with tunnels I should say. Mm -hmm. Vehicle mm -hmm. tunnels. When was uh, the monument designated? Yeah, it was designated uh, December 12th of 1919. 1919. Mm -hmm. who, who was the driver behind that? So it seems like a lot of the people in the local communities wanted a, a, a national park here. And so they kind of petitioned their local uh, congressmen and senators to, to make it happen. And uh, it wasn't until December 12th of, of 1919 uh, that the president used the Antiquities Act to create Scotts Bluff National Monument. Mitchell Pass is just one spot at the National Monument to explore. Closer to the visitor center are three wagons, two covered wagons and a Conestoga wagon pulled by six oxen, though these oxen are made of fiberglass, not blood and muscle. There's also a mile and a half road that you can drive to the summit of Saddle Rock, or you can hike there from the visitor center. At the top, you'll enjoy the cool breezes and shade from ponderosa pine and junipers, along with horizon-stretching views. On particularly clear days, you can make out Chimney Rock off to the east and Laramie Peak to the west. Inside the visitor center, be sure to look for the exhibit of William Henry Jackson's artworks, some of which depict the Oregon Trail and the wagon trains that he witnessed crossing Mitchell Pass. As the park superintendent told me, Scotts Bluff National Monument likely isn't your final destination on your exploration of the national park system. 
but it is a destination, one well worth visiting. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, Kurt Repencheck continues his exploration of overlooked units of the National Park System with a stop at Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve in Kansas. For The Traveler, this is Jess Repencheck. Interior Federal Credit Union supports its members with some of the best rates in the country. Check out their new certificate rates and competitive loan rates at interiorfcu.org. Set your money aside for a specific period of time and maximize your earnings with terms up to 60 months and a minimum opening deposit of $500. Bump-up certificates are also available to increase your rate once during the certificate's term. Ready to start saving? Apply at interiorfcu.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Since 1986, National Park visitors have turned to the best-selling guidebook, Passport to Your National Parks, to collect fun ink stamps from each of their explorations. Just take your passport book to any National Park Visitor Center or Park Store and get your free ink stamp with the date and location of your visit. Personalize your passport even more by adding stickers, logging your favorite hiking trails, and mapping your next adventure. You can also show off your love for our national parks with passport-themed apparel and accessories. Best of all, 100% of proceeds from the Passport program support your national parks. Stamp your passport as you capture stories, preserve memories, and discover America's natural and historical treasures. We are park stewards to ensure our most wild and historic places remain for generations to come, to safeguard our preferred arena for adventure, reflection, and inspiration. We donate 4% of our proceeds, that's revenues, not profits, to support America's most wild and historic places. We are Wild Tribute, apparel for the parks. Find out more at wildtribute.com. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That is why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Park's Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. 
National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit nationalparkstraveler.org.